When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. Visit our website at iFlyVABeach.com to learn more about our group events to include leadership development, team building, and family fun. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pizzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. If you've listened to my podcast in the past, you know that I only have discussions with guests who have brought great value to me and my organization, and I know that they will bring great value to you and your organization. Today's guest is exceptional to say the least. We have NASA astronaut Susan Kilrain in-house at iFly Virginia Beach in the podcast studio. I'm going to briefly read Susan's bio and then we're gonna jump right into an awesome discussion. Commander Susan Kilrain is a renowned astronaut, a distinguished Navy test pilot and aerospace engineer and a world traveler. She is the youngest person and only one of three women to pilot the space shuttle. She served 20 years in the Navy, paving the way for women. She has flown more than 3,000 flight hours in over 30 different aircraft. She was awarded the Defense Superior Service Medal. Commander Kilrain flew as a pilot of STS-83 and STS-94, spending more than 20 days in space. Her first mission was cut short due to a potentially life-threatening shuttle system failure. That's your bio, but holy cow, Susan, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be here. You have, I mean, to say you've accomplished a lot is an understatement. Two space shuttle missions. What does STS stand for? Space Shuttle Transportation System. It's the whole thing. It's not just the shuttle, it's the rockets and the you know fuel tank and all of that. It's just the acronym they gave it. Shuttle Transportation System. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Let's go back to your youth and where you grew up and how it is you got interested in becoming an astronaut. I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, and back in the 60s, in the early 60s. I was born in the early 60s, and I had three brothers. My dad was a surgeon or actually in medical school at the time, and we didn't have any money at all. So for entertainment, he used to take us to the local airport to watch the airplanes take off and land. And this what? is where I fell in love with flying, the idea of flying. I didn't know any pilots or anything, but I knew that I wanted to fly someday. 
And we just sit on top of the station wagon for hours and watch the airplanes take off and land. And I was fortunate in high school, I won a, a, a program that enabled me to get my private pilot's license. And by then I decided I wanted to be an astronaut simply by looking up at the stars, nothing magical like watching. I mean, I did watch the astronauts walk on the moon, but that wasn't the inspiration for me. And nobody told me, and I didn't know that women hadn't flown in space. A Russian woman had flown, but no American woman had flown in space and didn't until I was in, in graduate school. Nobody told me I couldn't do it. Okay. So you had uh, probably an enabling environment uh, growing up, I would imagine. Throughout high school, you got your private pilot's license. And then what did that lead to in terms of a career? Where did you go next? I went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University for my undergraduate degree, thinking I wanted to be a, a pilot, um, you know, get a pilot's license, become a commercial pilot. But before I even got there, uh, somebody recommended that it was going to be too easy academically for me. And I already had a lot of flight hours that I was going to have to repeat, which was costly. So I decided to switch to engineering, um, aeronautical engineering before I got there. And I thought that would work better for me wanting to be an astronaut someday. Uh, so I did that and then went on to Georgia Tech to get my uh, a master's degree in aerospace engineering while I worked at Lockheed in the wind tunnel of all places. <laughs> Good irony there. We're going to talk about that yeah. here in just a minute. So as an engineer, I knew I wanted to be an astronaut, but then so did a lot of aerospace engineers. And I was kind of bored sitting at a desk every day. And my boss at the time knew an astronaut and put me in touch with him who recommended I join the military and become a test pilot. And I thought that was the best idea ever. I could fly. I could get paid for it. It wouldn't be sitting at a desk every day. And it would ultimately, hopefully lead me to my goal of flying in space. So getting back to, you know, you, nobody told you you couldn't do it. When you joined to be a test pilot, was that difficult being a woman? Of course. Yes. In fact, the first time I found out that there was a difference, like women couldn't do everything that men could do was when I went to an Air Force recruiter to be to get into flight school and they had fulfilled their quota of women for the year. And I was like, what do you mean a quota for women? And at the time, there was the combat exclusion law in place where women couldn't be in combat at all. So they didn't need women pilots. They couldn't women couldn't fly everything in the military. And somebody recommended I take a look at the Navy and they took me, fortunately. And then when I when I got my wings, I also I wasn't able to fly much because I was a woman. Test pilot school was no different, but I also had to contend with the commanding officer who didn't have a good experience with a previous woman that had come through test pilot school. So he wasn't keen on taking another woman <laughs> into test pilot school. So yeah, being a woman did affect the trajectory of my career, but it didn't stop me from getting where I wanted to be. You had some additional hurdles to overcome there and test pilot school led to fighter aircraft or what What was the progression there? Well, test pilot school, I first went to a test directorate, which is the normal progression. But at that same time, the combat exclusion policy was done away with. And they opened up carrier aviation for women. And I was I received a call from an admiral asking if I would come to Virginia Beach and, and learn to fly the Tomcat, which I jumped on right away. So I was there were two women sent to the West Coast to fly the Tomcat. And, and I was 
brought here to the East Coast and uh, went to VF 101 right here at Oceana. That is interesting. I think I heard you tell a story previously that you had a compressor failure or you were you were flying your airplane and you had a malfunction. Can you tell us about that? Exactly. So, you know, I, I really honestly felt like I was being looked at like with a magnifying glass because I was the one woman in this all male testosterone filled environment. <laughs> and the commanding officer elected to be the instructor on my first flight. And we took off, flew out over the ocean about a, a hundred miles or so. And we had a an oil temperature high notification. Mm. And so I had to shut the engine down. And so I'm now one engine in the Tomcat, which is tricky to fly because the engines are so far apart and you get a lot of yaw. And then the hydraulic crossover didn't work. So we were down half of our hydraulics. The weather came in. Um, It was just like we call snakes in the cockpit Mm -hmm. trying to handle this airplane. That is my very first flight in the airplane. Um, there are no flight controls in the back seat, so he can't be of any help other than you uh, know, tell you what to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, I had to lower the arresting hook like we would normally just do at the carrier. But because of the hydraulic situation, I needed to lower the arresting hook and, and take a trap at the field, which worked out fine. And in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have ever happened because nobody questioned my ability to handle the airplane. After all those failures, you know. That's pretty exciting to say the least. So was all of that then part of your progression to become an astronaut, you know, test pilot and then fighter pilot or what is that the natural progression or what was your progression? Flying the Tomcat was just, you know, a good deal. And if I didn't get to NASA, flying the Tomcat would have been amazing. I would have gone off onto the carrier. The Eisenhower, I think, was already at sea and I was headed that way when I got the call from NASA. Um, it was the jet training and that I had already had and test pilot school. Those were the tickets I needed to punch in order to become a space shuttle pilot. There are astronauts of all kinds of walks of life. Um, they don't have to be test pilots. They don't have to be in the military. They don't have to be aerospace engineers. But that was just my path to get there. Okay, that's interesting. So astronauts then and now come from all these different walks of life with all these different skills and you knew that you wanted to be a shuttle pilot. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And then what, like, what is the application process like? <laughs> like you just call NASA and say, Hey, this is Susan. I want to be a shuttle pilot. Or how, how does that happen? Well, when NASA goes out and, and puts out a release that they're going to be taking applications for the following year selection, folks in the military that want to be astronauts have to apply through their military services. And so I applied to the Navy and then the Navy accepted my application and sent it on to NASA. And then NASA gets all the service applications plus civilian applications and goes through those. And typically they would interview 120 people and it's over, you know, a week. And now I think they do a phase one and a phase two application, like you make a cut or something. But at the time it was just one week where most of it's medical testing mental testing, and then um, and then an actual roundtable interview. And I was just very fortunate. I got selected on the first interview. Some people interview four or five, even six times. Sometimes they get selected on the sixth time. So at the end of the day, they still call them astronaut exactly. or I guess candidate, astronaut yeah, candidate anyway. They wanted to be, so. so is there like a PT test? So like Navy EOD, right? <laughs> Thousand yard swim, 
uh, you have to do 10 pull-ups, you got to do 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups, and then you have to run a mile and a half in, I think like nine and a half minutes. It's been a while since, uh, yeah. since I've taken it, but is there like a PT test? You know, there's not, and I don't know. I mean, all the military obviously would have had PT tests in the military, but, uh, I don't think they test anybody for their physical fitness other than medically they're physically qualified and but most astronauts tend to be in shape anyways for sure yeah if you have that kind of dream and that kind of pursuit um, being being physically fit just goes along with anything of that magnitude and it's it's tough on your body flying in space so you want to be as physically fit as possible when you leave earth because it's not going to get any better while you're away from earth yeah you got a phone call you were accepted you report to kennedy space center or what happened after you you know, you got the the call and you transferred, I guess you PCS. Well, the first thing I did after I got the call was I bought the bar that night. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually on a detachment in Key West. So oh, hell of a place to do yes, that. <laughs> with uh, our squadron of F-14s and then also the F-18s were down there as well and F-16s from next door. So anyways, I was uh, pretty excited. It took me weeks to pay off that bill. <laughs> and then... Um, I think it was another four months or so before I reported and it's to Johnson Space Center. All the astronauts live in Houston, Texas at the Johnson Space Center, which is where you do all your training and, and whatnot, especially all your initial astronaut candidate training. That's pretty cool. A, a friend of mine, retired Navy diver, he now does the contract diving ah. uh, at Houston and he sends these pictures out and it's just, and he's a photographer anyway. Mm -hmm. And so he takes these great pictures in that huge test tank with, you know, astronauts in their full um, space walking equipment uh, at the bottom of this looks like a 50 or 60 foot tank. It's incredible. So did it you, is. was that part of your training? It was a little bit. I didn't, pilots didn't do spacewalks, so I didn't need to do extent, extensive spacewalk training, but um, they do put us in, they put everybody in the tank for some training because it's the closest you can come to being in outer space or being in space underwater is kind of the closest. If you, if you balance your weights, right, you're neutrally buoyant. And, and so it's kind of the closest you can come to being in space. Let's, let's go to outer space. You get accepted, you go through your training. At some point you start flying the space shuttle uh, before you go into orbit, right? Is there like, like a training shuttle that you're doing flights in or how does that work? <laughs> Well, most of our training was in simulators um, where they're just ground-based. Some have motion, some don't have motion. And it's where the training team throws all the emergencies at you that you can possibly have and you go through all of that. But the pilots also fly the um, shuttle training aircraft, which is a modified Gulfstream where it flies the approach just like the shuttle. We put the reverse thrusters out in the air, which is insane because it just throws all this drag out there so that we basically fall like a rock to the ground. And so a variety of simulators, we do get in the zero gravity aircraft once just so we can experience weightlessness for real in, you know, 40 second intervals as we fly the parabolas. So, yeah. Lots of training, lots of different ways of training. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And we talked before we hit record, we talked about that a little bit, you know, what it's like to um, to be in those zero G aircraft as opposed to flying in a wind tunnel. You know, we're sitting here at iFly Virginia Beach. Susan has flown in a vertical wind tunnel before. She has that to compare to zero gravity. But in those aircraft, 
Um, you don't have any like flight control surfaces. There's no relative wind. So you are just kind of floating weightless. Is it a true simulation of outer space? It's an exact simulation. It's short lived. It's 40 seconds. But uh, if you put yourself, you know, somehow in the middle, you can't get to the sides because you have nothing to push off of. But it's almost impossible because you have to push off to get to the middle. And also the airplane is we're all free falling. That's the whole point is we're all free falling, which is the same thing that's in the shuttle. Mm -hmm. It's free falling to earth. It just doesn't hit earth because it's going 17,000 miles an hour around the earth. So it's falling all the way around the world. It's very, it's exactly like the weightlessness you feel in space. And it's very different from what you do here at iFly or, or free falling from an airplane because there is no, there's no wind resistance. You're not feeling wind you know, I was thinking that flying, jumping out of an airplane would be quiet. It's not quiet. You've still got the wind. Sure. Going absolutely. By you. In space, you know, if you could turn all the noise off from the shuttle, it would be completely quiet, dead silent. You don't feel anything. It's, it's just, you just float. Yeah. That's interesting. So, and you made the comparison to skydiving and flying in a wind tunnel, you know, uh, significant difference there. The first time you experienced weightlessness, now you flew two missions. Your first one was cut short, but were you in orbit and did you experience uh, weightlessness on that first flight? Yes, we were in orbit. In fact, we were there for three days. Okay. Uh, once we got on orbit, I think it was in the overnight period, mission control notice, um, there was a, a, a failure of one of our fuel control systems. So we had to shut it down, which gave us a third less electricity than we would normally want. And we were safe, you know, we were fine. But if we would have lost a second fuel cell system, then we would have not been safe and probably wouldn't have been able to get back down to earth. So we had to come home at that point. That brings us to an area that's somewhat delicate, you know, the Challenger disaster. So your missions, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think both of your missions were after Challenger and before Columbia, is that right? That's right. Both of my missions were in Columbia, in the space shuttle Columbia. So yes, Columbia happened after my two flights in Columbia. And Challenger was while I was in flight school. So yeah. So did the challenge in, in view of the Challenger incident, did you have any apprehension about you know being an astronaut and piloting the space shuttle? I didn't. I didn't have any, you know, I think there's part of some people, me included, that when you're young, you're single, you're bulletproof, you, you know, you have nothing to lose. And, and it was what I wanted to do. Had I been, had I had kids at that time, I might've taken a step back. I don't know, but um, yeah, it didn't slow me down at all. I was more concerned that they were going to cancel the program. Sure. And I was concerned about, you know, yeah. future, future disasters. So you flew your first mission, you flew your second mission, both in Columbia. How ironic. How does your career end as an astronaut? Or why didn't you fly it a third time and a fourth time? Everybody is different. I could have stayed at NASA. I could have flown three, four, five times. But I started having a family shortly after we, uh, Colin and I got married. Not too long after my second flight, a year later, we had our first child. And I thought I was going to be like most of the women at NASA and I'd have a kid. And six weeks later, I'd be like, ready to fly, ready to fly. <laughs> Put me on the schedule. But I wasn't. I, uh, Colin is a SEAL and he, and he deploys 
all the time, as you can imagine, especially starting in, in during that time frame. And I didn't think it was fair to have a baby and then train for 16 hours a day and then do the dangerous job of flying in space if he wasn't going to be around. And so I asked not to fly for a little while. Okay. And and the, they were fine with that. You know, flying's a volunteer job. <laughs> and then I had the second kid and Colin got transferred to Puerto Rico. And I had to make a decision at that point. Do I keep the family together and leave NASA or, or do I keep the kids and put, go to, you know, be in Houston and fly more space missions? And for me, it was an easy decision for everybody involved. Keeping the family together ultimately was the right decision, but everybody does it differently. I mean, there are a lot of women in the NAS, in the astronaut office. Many of them have kids. Many of them's husbands aren't necessarily co-located with them. And that's just, it, it's personal decision. You can always stop flying in space. It yeah. is a volunteer job. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, similar journey with my wife and I, you know, at some point we said, we're going to have children and, and she stopped working at that point. And um, we focused on our kids and, you know, me being in the military as well, there's the moves and, you know, complicated pregnancy and all these, all these things that come with twins, but it was a, a similar decision, right? We I were... stuck with it. I, I mean, after I left NASA, I was back in the Navy Yeah. because um, I never left the Navy the whole time. Okay. And so I was in the Navy when we were in Puerto Rico. And then when he got transferred up here to be CEO of team four, I transferred up here to Little Creek actually had a third baby. So now I'm active duty with three babies <laughs> and he's deployed nonstop and something had to give at mm -hmm. that point. And I had 20 in by then. So I retired. Okay. And then went on to have a fourth. <laughs> so, wow. And wow. then we started moving. When he made flag officer, we started moving every year. And uh -huh. it's, it's hard to hold a career that way if you're keeping the family. For sure. And your husband recently retired. He retired as a vice admiral, a three-star admiral. Right. He retired, I don't know, a few days ago. Okay. The end of February. <laughs> wow. Just a few days ago. So yeah. we have a NASA astronaut and we have a Navy SEAL vice admiral. So, so our poor kids. <laughs> <laughs> from what I understand, you know, from our talking earlier, your kids are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And our twins are 18 now. So I know the challenge. My wife and I know the challenge and do your best and it's all you can do. So you went from piloting two shuttle missions, transitioned into being a mom, having a family, supporting your husband's career in some capacity, and then SpaceX happens. <laughs> so were you like, oh, I should have stuck around or, you know, do you have Elon on speed dial? What do you think about SpaceX? Oh, I think it's a fascinating study and how to get things done quickly. You know, NASA's huge organization. It's a governmental organization, so it moves at a snail's pace. Where Elon's like, I'm going to fly rockets and and makes it happen in in a tenth of the time. I wouldn't necessarily. He's my example of a great leader. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I never wanted to fly with SpaceX. But um, by the time he was coming around, I also was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life because my kids were, were getting to the point they didn't want me around every day, <laughs> all the time. And, um, I, you know, so I do a lot of other things. I'm not going to fly in space anymore, but doing some exciting stuff that's new for me, which is great. You know, and like new North ventures or yeah, like new ventures. I mean, who would have thought that I would be, you know, 
venture capitalist, but sure, <laughs> well, it's been amazing. They they brought me on for uh, as a tech advisor mainly, and um, little by little, I'm learning the business, and so that's fun. I'm writing a book. I've actually written a children's book, which will be released this month this year, and I'm writing a regular book for adults, mostly geared towards for women. So those are all new things that I've never done. I'm sitting on a board for TRX, you know, the exercise straps. Uh, there's one about 20 feet away from you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. It's out in the, uh, and there's, there's one 20 feet away from you in this building. And then I've got one at my house. <laughs> a guy I know who I'd been on a board with before he bought the company when it was going into bankruptcy and he just recently bought it and I'm on the board for TRX now. Wow. So all this cool. stuff is is exciting and and it's keeping me busy. And now that my husband's retired, if he's going to stay at home, I need to be busy. <laughs> That's the typical scenario for all of us when we uh, get to the end of our military careers. So it's good being on this side of my kids. They don't need me very much anymore. No, there's a time when they have to just kind of go out and you know figure things out. All right. So you are you are really engaged. You're staying busy. Um, you've written one book, a children's book, you said? Yeah. Uh, okay. And can, can you tell us about that a little bit? Like why, why write it to begin with? Right. The book came about because I was writing the other book and a children's book seemed to be appropriate. It's titled An Unlikely Astronaut because uh, I consider myself an unlikely astronaut. I mean, who would have thought this, this little girl in, you know, Georgia, not a penny to her name or family was, you know, broke and, and the other things that I had grew up with would one day become an astronaut, you know, yeah, it just that's cool. seems so unlikely. And the message is, of course, you know, if I can fly into space, you kids can do anything you want to do. You know? That's a great message. That's cool. Is that book available on Amazon? It is. Um, it's only a, a pre-order now. Okay. You can get it through my website. You can get it off of Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the usual. Okay. Places. And what's the title once again? An Unlikely Astronaut. An Unlikely Astronaut, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And then what is the subject matter of your second book? The second book is about after the trailblazers. You know, we all hear about the first woman to do this or the first person of color or whatever to do something. And so that glass ceiling is broken and yay, we're good to go. Well, it's not like that. The people that come behind that first person don't necessarily have um, calm seas, let's say. It can be even sometimes rougher depending on who came through before them. You know, I, I mentioned briefly that when I wanted to go to test pilot school, the, the commanding officer wasn't keen on taking another woman mm -hmm. in test pilot school because the one before me hadn't done well. And I was being prejudged by her performance. And, and so it's not necessarily easy for all the women that come once there's enough numbers then it then it gets easier um so it's kind of the lessons i learned going through i was an engineer the only one in my office i was a test pilot i was an f-14 pilot i was a space shuttle pilot all traditionally male roles and so it's geared towards women that are in traditionally male dominated fields and how to navigate and get to your dream despite whatever prejudices might be out there. Okay. So in and around that and throughout your Navy career and your uh, NASA career, were you in leadership roles and is, is leadership kind of inspiring or, you know, within the pages of this, of this book as well? There's definitely, I think there's a whole chapter 
on leadership. Um, I was in leadership roles in my Navy career specifically. There's also the leadership of being in the cockpit and being the pilot and control that environment. But mostly when I was um, a division officer or department head or whatever, that I had people that were actually working directly under me. But when I think of leadership, the first thing that comes to mind are the leadership lessons I learned, not from me, but from other leaders, you learn, I mean, most everybody learns their leadership lessons and kind of their leadership style from leaders they've had. For good, sure. Bad and ugly. Yeah. Know? Yeah. For yeah. sure. Actually, it starts in childhood with you with your parents, parents and teachers teach. and coaches. And absolutely. Yeah. You, you learn it from all those people. So I was very fortunate to have some amazing leaders and I had some really lousy leaders too. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I went from one executive officer who wanted, he said straight to my face, I'd like to rank you first of all the lieutenants in the command. However, let's face it, you could be at home having children. Wow. Leadership lesson learned. I don't want to be like that. Right. And then there was another commanding officer that I had who actually, when when I was in Oceana here, who still lives here, that he set the best leadership examples and really supported and mentored me and in, in my path, he didn't uh, single me out as a woman. So, you know, you'll learn the good and the bad. Yeah, you sure do. And and that's been my path and my experience, you know, so much so to the point that I, I wrote a book about it. But the book covers both my military career and now, you know, 12 years in the private sector and right. and um, what I've learned. And then and, and there's tremendous difference. There's a lot of similarity because human beings are human beings, you know, similarity between leadership uh, in the military and in the private sector. But then there's also some tremendous differences. So, well, that's awesome. Um, Susan, what haven't I asked you that would be of great value to our listeners? Oh, wow. That's a hard one to think right off the cuff. (laughs) This is off the cuff, by the way. If we were talking about leadership, I would say, you know, the the saying holds so true. Give credit in public Mm -hmm. and give criticism in private. Mm -hmm. That lesson I've learned from both sides of it, you know, and, uh, as the leader, take the blame. For sure. Take the blame of your team. You know, yeah. you're ultimately going to get, you know, you're ultimately going to be responsible anyway. So you might as well just take the blame. Yep. <laughs> you know? yep. And I right. learned that from the commander of my uh, first flight. Uh huh. He, he took the blame for a mistake that I made uh-huh. in training. Uh huh. And um, of course, I still internalized it and was embarrassed and all of that stuff. But he took the blame, but didn't throw me under the bus. But you still owned it. But I owned it, you know, to my team, to our crew and also myself. Yeah. Yeah. um, He took the blame. And I learned a valuable lesson that day from about leadership. You know, there's just tons of examples. How can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about Susan Kilbrain and more about the books that you've written and the book that you're writing? SusanKilrain.com. It's pretty easy to remember. Okay. K-I-L-R-A-I-N. <laughs> yep. And um, the public speaking side of things, I do a lot of public speaking. That's probably the biggest thing that I do is um, motivational speaking, especially for young people, women's groups, but also corporations. I, I like to speak and talk about mainly resilience, perseverance, okay, um, trust, uh, taking responsibility, but yet... Sure. Going after your dream, no matter how many people say no. Sure. Public speaking, author, you're just moving ahead. It sounds like I'm going to use this phrase that should be familiar. It sounds like you have a lot of runway ahead of you yet. (laughs) I hope so. I plan to live for a long time because, you know, that way I can embarrass my children at every turn. 
spoken like like a true naval aviator. So Susan, thank you so much for coming on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's nice to be here. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com. Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com and connect with him on LinkedIn.